Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's remarkable moment is from the opening chorus of the cantata Bleib bei uns, denn es will Abend werden. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening, and the day is almost over. Let your light scatter the darkness and illumine your church. Those words come from the Lutheran service of evening prayer. I think my favorite of the four Gospels to read is the Gospel of John because he's very poetic and philosophical, which listeners of this show, especially the philosophical part of it, won't be surprised at the fact that I like that. But John famously starts his Gospel not with the birth of Christ, but with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Goes on to say, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I think the classic nature of a story of good versus evil, of light versus darkness, of life versus death, there's just no way a story can be more captivating than if it pits light and darkness against each other. If you want to hear a little more background about this cantata, you can always go back to our previous episode we did about this. It was in our first season, episode 11. So I won't rehash everything that we talked about there, but I do want to bring up one reminder if you remember that episode, and that is that we talked about a moment from one of the arias which dealt with darkness versus light and the way Bach painted the word of darkness. Just as it was very clear to John that he was going to set his story using the framework of light and darkness, so also it was very clear to Bach that on this Easter Monday, when confronted with this text about Jesus on the road to Emmaus, it makes a lot of sense to focus on light versus darkness here too. Stay with us, for it is almost evening. Now let's have a listen to the beginning of this cantata, in which Bach paints the words perfectly before the singers even come in with the text. This is sumptuous music compared to the more austere stuff of the Renaissance period before before this, or even the early Baroque was pretty austere compared to this. This is lavishly orchestrated, at least it would have been considered so at the time. But it's actually kind of simple right at the beginning here. What's happening is 
a beautiful oboe trio playing some melodic stuff, but if you listen to the strings, they're actually sitting on one note, and they repeat the note over and over. Okay, that's a special effect. Clearly Bach is doing that for a reason. I would say it's pretty obvious what that reason is, wouldn't you, Christian? If you look at the text. Stay. Yeah, stay with us, that's right. Or abide with us, bleib, right? The word meaning stay. But what's notable to me is that this pedal point, which is when a note stays put while other notes move, this pedal point is in the strings, the the violins and viola, and for the violins at least, it's the very lowest note they can play. It's the low G string, an open string, so you're never going to get a vibrato tone out of that string. Um, if you've ever watched string players, and if you're not one yourself, you might wonder why, at some points, the left hand, which is the one on the fingerboard, wobbles a little bit on a long note, and that is to create a sense of pleasing vibrato on the tone so it doesn't sound too straight and hard-edged. But you can't do that on the very lowest string because you have to let it sound openly and there's no way to put your finger on it for that note. So that note just has to literally stay put. Hmm. What else is going on in this music here? Let's listen to that intro again and let's characterize the music, especially listening to the sounds of the harmony that we're hearing. So it's a minor key, and if we're familiar with the St. Matthew Passion and or the St. John Passion, we realize that this sounds a lot like the closing chorus movement of the St. Matthew Passion. And maybe even more similar to the second to last movement of the St. John Passion, which is another powerful big chorus movement. Both of those movements that I just mentioned there, interestingly, the text is about sleep. And both of them come at the end of the Passion story, so you could probably guess that it's about not just sleep, but it's about death. It's about Jesus resting in peace in the grave. They have the exact same affect. They do, and this one shares it. And it's a little interesting that Bach chose that affect for this. It's not really about death, is it? Or is it? <laughs> okay. Mm. And that's that's my theory. And it's not, I don't think it's a wild theory or that I'm particularly clever for thinking of it because with this kind of thing, it's just, it's pretty plain. And I think music scholars have said this before, which is that this affect, this dark, drudging, three-quarter time dirge that Bach sometimes uses is supposed to be about the dread of death. In this story, the disciples asked this stranger to stay with them because it's getting dark outside. There's a fear of darkness. There is a desire for the light. 
Let's continue listening a little bit into this movement and hear what Bach does with these melodic lines. Listen to how one oboe starts with a line that starts on a higher note and starts falling. Then they keep cascading, the next oboe comes in a little lower. Then the third oboe, which is the oboe di caccia, like the alto oboe, comes in after. The music here in the introduction sets up the text perfectly. Here we hear the notes and the strings staying on that note again. It's a different note this time, but they're staying on the same note for a long time. Here come those high oboes cascading down again. just in time for the entrance of the singers. The words bleib bei uns meaning stay with us, the word stay being accented on the beat, and then the word with being almost pleaded. Bye. Stay by us, stay with us, right? It's, it's not usually the preposition that gets the note length accent or the trill accent, you know. Yeah, yeah. In terms of grammar, when you compose right. according to a sentence, the notes that you really accentuate tend to be the ones with the natural word accents in the sentence. Those tend to be like the subject and object noun or a verb maybe or something like that. But you wouldn't think to normally accent this word that means with. Right. guess it's in or with or by by yeah yeah in English sounds like and it even yeah. sounds like the word by right or, or near or by, even by near us. like stay near us right. right but but it's one of those brilliant things where you can absolutely inflect a sentence when you speak it like 10 or 20 different ways stay with us stay with us or what Bach is doing here is stay with us yeah. Stay near us, more like I think it's more. Right, and those those word accents do matter, and we know that he takes care with that stuff. So he did that on purpose. Sometimes you do have to fit words into a context that makes sense musically, but, I mean, largely that's what being a good choral composer is it, to do that well, right? So I think it doesn't give Bach enough credit to, to say, as some music scholars would, that, well, he... He's creating this great affect, but the, the placement of the words don't matter as much because they do. And yeah. he writes that in his scores. And if you look at his scores, he doesn't write out every word where it belongs underneath the notes, but that's just a matter of abbreviation because he writes out the first couple and then he assumes that the copyist will get the gist of it. Yeah. And we always get the gist of it. 
This is kind of a saraband, right, Christian, would you say? Definitely. It has to do with the the slow three-quarter time, but it specifically has to do with the, the sort of strong pulse on beat two that we were just talking about on that word, by. So one cool thing that Bach does throughout this entire movement is he keeps that pedal tone thing. He keeps doing it. He doesn't just do that at the beginning. And he does it in a different way in the middle section. So this opening movement is the centerpiece of this work. This happens a lot with Bach cantatas. The most complex thing happens right away, right? The first movement is the big complex chorus. And this is what this is. This has a middle section that goes into a different feel. The affect of it is largely similar, I guess, but it's it's a little different. It's it's faster, and it's now in four four time. Right away, there the basses are singing "Bleib bei uns" in long tones, like this. While the faster figures are happening above. So if, if you listen to that again, you can hear the bass enter there. It's a soloist, and then a tenor soloist above. And then the soprano, try listening to that again now and listen for the soprano entrance, and you'll hear that she's doing actually a different theme. And you might think, huh, that's weird. We're used to fugues having one theme, but how, how is it that he's throwing three themes at us immediately? That's very weird. Here's what the soprano theme sounds like. So it's the different little bit of text. So the basses are singing bleib bei uns. The tenors are singing the next bit of text, denn es will Abend werden, which means for it's getting dark, right? For it's getting toward evening. But then there's the third little bit of text that's, and the day is far spent, which is, und der Tag hast sich geneigt. And that is being sung by the soprano. So what this is, is actually a double fugue, but the long notes in the bass, I, that doesn't really count as a fugue entrance. I don't think, Christian, would you agree? Because mm. it just ha- it's literally three notes and then it doesn't, it always stops after they sing it. So I don't think it counts as one of the subjects. It's like a double fugue with an extra little spice thrown in. I don't know. Or would you call this a triple I fugue? Think I think I'd call it a triple fugue. Oh, well, not until it, the third motif like enters, that subject but enters. But it, happens, it all happens in the first measure. Oh, oh All three motifs are in the first measure. You see what I mean? Oh, yeah. I think yeah. it's a triple fugue. So let's listen for that again. So... If we start this music and we have to listen for when this section even starts, which it kind of happens suddenly, but once it does, the basses are singing, Blibe, bye. It's one bass, actually, our soloist. And then the tenor comes in, right? And then the soprano. And we're listening for all of that. Those three different figures are what we're going to be hearing Bach use in all the different ranges as he goes forward with this fugue. Whether or not the third thing 
the long note thing is a subject, I'm, I'm not sure. But it's at least a double fugue with an extra counter motif. Yeah. Now I'm kind of curious. I want to look up a little more about if people say that that's a triple fugue. I would guess, because it, it, really, it really behaves like a double fugue to me, look, yeah. looking at it, with, with a little extra thrown in, right, every once in a while. So the bass, this is what I'm the most interested in, because it's leading up to my moment which you heard at the beginning of the episode, as is our custom on A Moment of Bach. So if you remember what that sounded like, we're going to get there. You heard the bass sing those three notes on the same pitch. Bleib, bei, un. Bleib, bei, uns, those notes. Three notes. Now let's see when that will happen again. It's a little bit later in the soprano. It kind of becomes obvious once you start listening for it, right? It's it's actually the easiest thing to listen for because it's the least complicated. It is passed around the different parts. In this section, by the time we really get going, the soprano part is doubled by the first oboe and violin, and the alto by the second oboe and violin, and the third by the viola and the yeah, but not always. So. When those instruments come in, when the higher strings and oboes come in, they're doubling some of the voice parts, but not all of them. And in fact, you hear a pretty strident sounding entrance of the first oboe and first violin oh, yeah. on the high note. But then he ends up doubling them later. But it's all very cleverly done. Sometimes it's in the middle range. We can hear it in the oboe de concia and viola part, as well as the tenor part, if we're listening carefully. On this note. This is an absolute thrill to sing, I will say that. I get the pleasure of conducting this piece um, very soon. And I will shout this out at the end of the episode. Listeners, if you happen to be local to us here in Southern California, you can hear this cantata. The way that Bach starts fugues is pretty consistent, right? He'll start it with an entrance of the subject. And like we said here, if it's a double fugue, both subjects will enter usually right there, although some double fugues have it staggered, like uh, like the Dona Nobis Pachum one is a famous example. But, you know, how he ends fugues, it could be any number of ways. He does a, He's a little more creative with that. And here is one of my favorites, and it comes to our moment. Listen for the long notes on bleib bei uns. That's the pitch we're listening for the choir to sing. So did you hear it? The choir stayed on that pitch while the instruments continued to play some of the shorter notes. then right after the choir is done holding out those notes they sing one more quick bleib bei uns and then the orchestra pauses for a second let's hear that and then it goes back into the original material I love that moment so much, and I love how 
Netherlands Bach Society interprets that pause because in the score it's not necessarily that long of a pause. Yep, there's no fermata in the manuscript. I'm not that I can see. Yeah, you're right. But is it, it is an implied divisional break between the end of this second section and then the reprise of the of the first section. Interestingly, there is what looks like a fermata on the soprano part. You looking at that manuscript there? See that? I do. I see it. Is that it's a... only in the one part? I don't think that would have really been. It is a fermata. I don't think that's what he meant. Pretty sure I've seen some editions of this. I'm looking at one now that has no fermatas, but I'm pretty sure I've seen some that have one on the note itself, but not on the rest. It's a bit hard to tell if it's a fermata or just a little squiggle of ink. And it's probably also a consideration of the space you're in. You know, you need to let that wonderful sound resonate in a church like that. But the reason why this is my moment and what stuck out to me, it's not just because those long notes sound cool in the choir, but it's because of something truly remarkable, which I don't, I can't think of any other Baroque composer who's ever done this. I can't think of any other time Bach has ever done this in his own work. It probably exists out there somewhere, and I'd love to hear if listeners know. But here, Bach sets these three words on the same pitch, but each of the four voice parts, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, are singing a different octave. There are four octaves of G's in this section. That, while it doesn't sound particularly weird when you're listening in context, that is truly remarkable in all of Bach's work. In all of anyone's work, uh, in any of his contemporaries, I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate how strange this is. The The range of the human voice is not that much compared to some of the other instruments like, you know, violin or piano, organ. The amateur range of singing is a little bit less than an octave and a half. The professional choral range is closer to two octaves, which means that across the ranges of all four parts, there's definitely overlap, but the tenors can't sing the low G. The basses could have sung the medium G that the tenors have. The tenors can, everyone can sing two Gs is what I'm really saying, basically, in their range, right? Everyone could sing a lower and a higher one in their slightly more than an octave and a half worth of range. They're usually going to have two Gs in in those ranges, or they they will have two. For the sopranos, they can hit the high one. The altos can't do that. So it's one of the only notes that you can have a choir sing four octaves in. In fact, it's kind of the only one because an F would be pushing too too low for the basses. Yeah, you can't project, you can't ask most bass sections to consistently project a loud low F. And an A, too high for a long note for the sopranos. Not... Not out of range, but a little bit, a little high. Right. Bach Bach writes high A's for sopranos, but he does not write long ones. I don't think ever. They're almost always short. Yeah. yeah it's, it's it's straining to the voice to be in the top one or two notes for a long notes. So you can't write a melody across four octaves, and Bach doesn't do that. He writes a single note motif across four octaves. But the effect is striking and weird, and we just don't ever get to hear anything like that. Even... Even in contemporary choral music, this could be an effect that only you could only get a few seconds out of because 
what else could you do? It's it's four octaves. <laughs> it's there it is, you know. But it's a great effect. Yeah, right. And it's not even part of Bach's like more experimental younger years, you know. This is a cantata oh, yeah. he wrote in Leipzig, which we usually associate with like the more polished and by the numbers Bach, even though he's a special composer. But his his music of that era seem, just always seems a little less experimental. But here we have a perfectly experimental moment. It's so it's so great because it would have been so much simpler to just have two G's. Everyone singing, it would be stronger, even if it was just three, like the soprano high G and then the bass and tenor shared the G, you know, we would not worry about that at all. Yeah, this this is like almost a, like a hidden gem, like a little hidden nerd moment where we music nerds can be like, oh, look that. Because it would have probably, as you said, Christian, it would have probably been fine to just have it two actually, or three. It actually would have been clearer, arguably, like in terms of register. When you orchestrate music and when you're a composer or a arranger or whatever, you're usually looking to make things clean and clear. And you, one of the things you can do is separate registers. So if there's something already going on in the low register, then you have a second thing, you put that in the medium or high register. You're trying to stay out of the way of the other instrument. Mostly, mostly. Right. Sometimes, like right here, you might do the opposite on purpose. And Bach chose to use the entire range of high to low choral register against the entire range of high to low active instrumental parts that are moving around it. It's amazing. Yeah, but but that's why it works because because they're holding a note, and because the instruments are fluttering around on short notes. So it is the right? natural conclusion. Like that's the only reason. Why it's the it natural works. endpoint conclusion of his whole motif from the very beginning of the violin pedal point and then the blight by uns long notes it's all building to this moment of stay here with me and now we're basically shouting it at the top and bottom of all of our yeah. ranges it's amazing yeah and also the fact that there are four different g's it's kind of got this little poetic symbolism to maybe, I don't know, you could take it this way, that it's it's each of us saying it in our own voice because we're not all saying, we're not even all saying it on the same note. We're saying it all in our own range. So we all say it differently, but it, the message is the same. Right. I agree with you. I, I do think that's a little, we're going into subjective territory here with that, but but I still like it, <laughs> yeah. Christian. And, and that's because I, I always like that metaphor of like, choir singing together is a metaphor for us confessing a shared idea or whatever yeah, it's a little bit on, um, it's a little bit on the nose choir but singing it's good actual harmony yeah yeah but, but it makes sense and, and yes Bach is using a fugue and then putting things together to make an effect here but he's doing it for a reason you know these things always had reasons um and this this right here is what you said it's an agreement we're all exactly on the same page literally on the same note and even though it's spread out in their octaves because it's each of our own distinct voices, we're all pleading with Jesus to stay with us, right? That's what this is about. And the movement then concludes. It returns to the original material for a pretty short recap of that material. And you can hear right away when the orchestra enters those strings again staying put on the low g 
they're kind of those faster repeated notes that we heard right at the beginning of the movement. And that's how it ends. And my favorite thing about it is, yeah, yeah, exactly. That, my favorite thing about it is that it ends just like that with those strings doing just that. And Bach is content to do that and not having to wrap it up in a nice bow, but just letting the all three string parts just end on just that note. absolutely a stunning piece of work. The way that the music tells that story, the battle between light and darkness and the, the fear of the darkness, it's, there's this trembling thing that happens on that pitch, right? With those strings. And then there's that pleading on the one note, stay with us, stay with us. That's, that's what the note is doing, right? That's why the pitch stays that way. Not just because it's the word stay, but because like someone making that plea, maybe even a child saying, stay with me, stay, stay. And it like stays on the same pitch, right? And, and it stays when it, the harmony changes. I think more than, more than most other composers, Bach used harmony for the text storytelling. We, we know that that's true. And here's an example of where right. it's not the weirdness of a chord that tells this sentence perfectly, but it's the fact that the common tone stays. And this is kind of a basic music theory concept that many pairs of chords, just like one chord and then another chord, a lot of times they will share one note. And the most common progressions of chords share a note. And Bach wrote this pedal point quite simply so that one note is shared the whole time. That note is rarely a, a dissonance against the others, but it just sort of sits there and it works in all of them. And that's called a common tone. And it also, it also tells the story perfectly because it stays against everything changing. This music was written for Easter Monday, and that is because at the end of the story of those disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, they do invite the stranger in, and he turns out that he was Jesus. He was the risen Jesus. But then he left them. The text says he disappeared from their sight. So he doesn't stay with them. So it ends a little weird. However, John makes clear that, in fact, Jesus does stay with them. It's through prayer and through the word, right? How Jesus stays with them and through the communion, which is the meal that he shared with them, that he stays with them. And it's through pieces of music like what we just heard that tell that story so well that we can be reminded of that feeling I just think it's a beautiful thing that this music that was written 300 years ago, which tells the story of something that happened 1700 years before that, can absolutely stand the test of time. And we can completely understand emotionally what is going on in this story, and it can affect us in this way, even now, 2000 years after it happened. And now, here is the quadruple octave moment from the opening chorus of the cantata Bleib bei uns. Die, 
If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the cantata, please see the link in our episode description to see its performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Also check the description for the details of Alex's concert on this cantata. Yeah, if you live in the Southern California area, we're performing this very cantata. You should come see it. It's an amazing work. It'll be a great concert. It's also an evening prayer, Vespers service, which I think works perfectly, as we know, for this text all about the evening. Check out that link in the description. And I just want to share what happened when we talked about this moment, Christian. We we text between the two of us about Bach all the time, of course. And I texted Christian saying, I want to do Blood by Unz again. Oh, yeah. And then, do you remember what you said? Yeah, you just texted me back, quad octaves, question mark? <laughs> like, you guessed it quad immediately. Octaves. Quad octaves. So Christian, what's next? Next week, we're taking a look at something from Bach's cello suites, a listener suggestion of the sixth suite, Allemande, for cello? Question mark? <laughs> Until next time, stay with those moments. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>